0: Uh, We're going to be in John chapter 8 this morning, John chapter 8 in this series, Conversations with Jesus, all about these conversations that Jesus has with different kinds of people. So let me pray and then we'll get into it. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Jesus, um, we thank you that you do not see us as trash, but you see us as your treasure. Uh, you, You see us as your prized possession. And so, God, uh, a lot of us are walking in with any, any number of kinds of guilt and shame this morning, and so we just ask that you would speak louder in that than uh, those other voices in our lives, that uh, here, Lord, as we speak to your nature, that you would be speaking back to us. So help us to hear your voice and do what you say. Um, get our attention this morning, we pray in Christ's name, amen. You know, sin is a word that we don't use anymore, Sin. Like even if you say that, somebody's like, somebody is listening and they don't like it. Sin is a word that we don't use anymore. It's politically incorrect. It's out of vogue. We don't feel qualified to talk about somebody else's sin unless we want to do so privately. That's what we call gossip. We have no problem with talking about other people's sin behind their backs, but God forbid we ever say anything about someone's sin directly to their face because who am I to call the kettle black? You know, people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. But behind all of those truisms and those little lines that we use to defend ourselves, a lot of us are more than, more, than aware, more than aware, we are painfully aware of the ways that we've messed up, of the mistakes we've made, of our screw-ups. And so we look back on a season of our lives and see the mistakes, we see the failure, we cringe, we look back on a particular conversation, we shudder. And if you're walking in this morning with guilt and shame over mistakes made, over maybe mistakes that you're making right now, Uh, Jesus is gonna come with words that I think would surprise us and catch us off guard. Walter Brueggemann says that he comes to us softly and without judgment when we have already judged ourselves. And so Jesus comes to us as he comes to this woman that we meet in John chapter eight, verses one through 11. The text says this, they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust, and when the, others, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said, neither do I. John 8 opens on the scene where Jesus is teaching to the temple, teaching to this large crowd that has gathered around him, and his popularity has grown significantly by the time we hit this midpoint in John's gospel. So here he is teaching to these crowds, and the Pharisees see this large crowd as an opportunity to shame and guilt Jesus. And so they drag this woman uh, in front of these older brother types. If you were here with us this week, you can catch that. And by the way, if you ever miss a sermon, uh, they get posted online to SoundCloud, which you can find on an app on your phone and on our Facebook page. and, And so they drag, these religious leaders drag this woman caught in adultery, and they're trying to trap Jesus into saying something they could use against him. I feel compelled to tell you that if you notice in your Bible that this text is in italics or has brackets around it, it says something like, "The most ancient Greek manuscripts do not include John 753 to 811." This is New Testament scholars just trying to screw with me uh, this morning, because here's the reality of how the Bible was made. Uh, the Bi- we do not have any existing manuscripts of the original copies of the New Testament. We have copies of copies of copies. But by every scholarly measure, every copy of a copy of a copy that we have is more accurate and more reliable than other historical documents that you would think are more accurate and more reliable. We're now talking about something I can nerd out about. It's called textual criticism. Textual criticism is the art of trying to figure out what the Bible really, really says. So you had all of these copies of copies of copies of John's Gospel distributed around the ancient world And eventually, while the the, the earliest ones did not include this story, later manuscripts did. Now this breaks a rule of textual criticism. Textual critics always look for the oldest manuscript because it's the closest. Imagine playing a game of telephone. The person right next to the first person probably has a more accurate message than the 10th person. The problem is again, New Testament scholars and Bible publishers are trying to mess with me and so they decide to put in brackets in this Bible that they've published that this was not in the earliest manuscript. So why include it? They include it because it probably did happen. Uh, This is a story that was told around the early church so much that scribes putting this document onto paper decided to add it into this. And so here's what this means. We can trust the Bible Okay, because we know that God superintends this process of, 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 of telephone. We know that the Bible is a very human document. We know it, was, it did not drop out of heaven, just written by God's hands. But we want to talk about this story because in the history of the church, they said this is accurate, this is scripture to us. And so we can kind of trust this process. And if that leaves you with more questions than answers, welcome to the New Testament. Jesus brings this, sees this woman in front of her, in front of him. He sees this woman and he starts writing in the dust. And eventually stands up and looks at these men around, around this adulterous woman and says, He, is without, he who is without sin can cast the first stone. Now this, this phrase is taken on a life of its own in our culture, right? I mean, it means the same thing as who am I to call the kettle black or or, those who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. We read this and we think Jesus is telling us, well, judge not lest you be judged. We think he's saying to all of these people, everybody's guilty, so nobody's to blame. But that's not what's happening in this text. You know, when Jesus says to these people, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, the men that accuse this woman walk away because they recognize their guilt in bringing bringing her before Jesus. Listen, in the Old Testament, uh, to catch a woman in adultery required two witnesses seeing the incident. And if you don't know what the incident is, go home and ask your mom. uh, Seeing the incident at the exact same time in the exact same place, which basically mean if you caught somebody in adultery, it's because you set a trap to catch somebody in adultery. And so these men bring this woman that they have trapped in her sin before Jesus in order to trap Jesus. And so when Jesus says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, they don't walk away because they think, oh, gosh darn it, Jesus is right. I've done bad things, you've done bad things, let's all go home. What they're realizing is their sinful motives What they're realizing is their sinful motives in bringing this woman for Jesus in the first place. Because what does the text say? They were trying to trap Jesus. And yet this still leaves us with a question because we'd much rather let he who is without sin cast the first stone, mean that I am off the hook from ever addressing somebody else's sin. We're much more comfortable with judge not lest you be judged. You do your thing, I'll do mine and we'll all just kind of be friends together. But that's not really what the New Testament teaches about talking about each other's sin. There's a few things that the New Testament teaches us when it comes about talking about sin, about about judging, and one of those things is found in 1 Corinthians 5. Paul says, It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders, Paul says but it certainly is our responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside. A lot of us when we think of judging, we think of those people that hold like big mean signs outside of funerals or that protest or yell or that post that weird Christian Republican person or that weird Christian Democrat person who posts time after time after time on our newsfeed about how wrong the world is. But the reality is our judgment as the church is not directed toward those outside of it. It is directed at those already inside the church. I'm supposed to be all up in your business, not in the society's. When I preached this at our earlier service, it got really quiet too, it's okay. Because we're, not, we're told not to judge the outside, we're to judge on the inside. And then Paul makes it even more uncomfortable in 1 Corinthians 4 when he says, don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time before the Lord returns, for he will bring out our darkest secrets to light. And he will reveal our private motives. Then he will give to each one whatever praise is due. So here's what I'm not supposed to do. I'm not to judge those on the outside, nor am I supposed to judge the motives of your heart that I know nothing about. And the problem with that is, is that's 80% of what I spend judging. Because I'll be driving in the car and talking about somebody who's giving us a hard time and I will say, well, they just do this or that because they just feel like this. They just get mad at me because they used to be in control and and now they're not. Uh, They just need to feel, they just need to put other people down because they don't feel good about themselves inside. See, what do we do all the time in our psychologized age is try to rip up and dig into other people's motives all the time, but I'm not supposed to judge that. Unless you've told me the motives of your heart, it's not my job to guess and accuse on the basis of what may or may not be in your heart. I'm not supposed to judge those on the outside. I'm not supposed to judge uh, your motives, which I know nothing about. Here's what I am supposed to judge I'm supposed to judge your fruit. Jesus says, A tree is identified by its fruit. If a tree is good, its fruit will be good. And if a tree is bad, its fruit will be bad. Here's what we judge. When we judge on the inside, what we do is we examine and lovingly address, we do this graciously and kindly, we do it in the safety of committed, servant-hearted relationship, but we address explicitly sinful behavior. We examine and address lovingly, graciously, kindly, in the safety of committed, servant-hearted relationships, the explicitly sinful behavior of a professing Christian. One more time, we examine, we address, we judge lovingly, graciously, kindly in the safety of a committed, servant-hearted relationship, the explicitly sinful behavior of a professing Christian. The problem with this is a couple of things. The first of all, most of us don't know how to do this, and the second thing is that none of us do it. See, what we're actually more interested in is doing the 80% of judging that we shouldn't be doing instead of the 20% that we should. So we'd rather not directly and personally and lovingly express and address sin in a person's life. What we'd rather do is tell five other people about what we think their motives are to be. So we spend all of this time saying, well, he just does this and he just does that, and they do it because of this, this, and this, and this motive and that motive. But scripture says not to do that. Scripture says that I'm supposed to go to somebody and say to them, I'm seeing this in your life. And here's the other piece of this that's, that's important. When we express concern over sin in somebody's life, we always end the sentence with a question, not a period. We end the sentence in a question, not a period. Kyle, I've been seeing a little bit of arrogance bubble up in your heart. Do you think that could be true? Kyle, I've been noticing this shift uh, in your attitude lately. I'm wondering why that is. hey, I have some concerns about the way that you're ordering your priorities right now. Do you think we could have a conversation about that? Not text message 10 p.m. Hey, I think you should be dumping this boyfriend. He's no good for you. Again, it's quiet in here, (laughs) so shake it off. But this is what it means to be part of the people of Jesus. It means that I am my brother's keeper. I am my sister's keeper. We watch over each other's souls. And we do so lovingly, we do so calmly, we do so directly. Because that's what Jesus does. We judge a tree by its fruit. So when Jesus says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, all of these people go walking away starting with the oldest I mean they just kind of trickle out and soon Jesus is just left with this woman dragged from her bed in the midst of her sin half clothed sitting in front of all of these men in the temple and he looks at her and he says to her dear woman where are your accusers are they still here and she says no and he says neither do I condemn you Go and sin no more. The accusers fade. She's left with Jesus and he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Listen, in this one sentence, Jesus entirely sums up the gospel. In this one sentence, Jesus explains exactly who he is in our lives and longs to be in the lives of others. See, he does this thing where he says, go. He takes her off the hook of condemnation, off the hook of accusation, and he releases her from this moment. Listen to me. The gospel says that the sins of your past, the mistakes that you've made, your failures, your screw-ups are not the weightiest and most important part of your story that the things that you have done wrong, the ways that you have lived out of the bounds, the way that you might be in this moment living outside the boundaries of what Jesus has for us, the way that right now you might be engaged in active sin, Jesus says, go, be free, be set loose. Because here's what happens in the gospel. The gospel tells us that our sins are no longer counted against us. Think about that. Our sins are no longer counted against us. Instead, they are counted against Jesus. Uh, Scripture says that he nailed the record of wrongs against us to the cross when he died. The things that you hold, that you feel like are held against you, Jesus says, go. He says, I have died for these things. He lets us free. He lets us go. But then he says, go and sin no more. Jesus does not say, go and just keep on sinning and do whatever feels good because I'm good and you're good and it's great and you just do whatever feels nice. Just go do that. He, he, he doesn't say that, nor does he say, go and if you do this one more time, I will smash you with the wrath of a thousand fires. I mean, no, he says, go and sin no more. See, the gospel, on the other hand, on the one hand, we can, we can overemphasize one sense of it, which is, oh, I can just be free and let whatever happen. But on the other hand, we can overemphasize his wrath, and, that, and that's not what he's doing. He, the gospel is not a blank check. The gospel is not a blank check for you to do whatever the heck you want. The gospel is not a blank check uh, for you to just continue on in a pattern of sin. He says, go and sin no more. Paul, when he talks about this idea, he says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? And the early church, because of the freedom they felt, they were like, hey, listen, when I sin, it gives God an opportunity to demonstrate his mercy to me. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sin a lot. Because that means God can show his mercy a lot, right? And Paul says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? He says, meganoito, which is the strongest word in the New Testament for no way, Jose. uh uh-uh. No way, not gonna do it. Heck no. In fact, it's more like H-E double toothpicks, no. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, Paul is saying in the strongest possible terms, no, we don't go on sinning so that grace may abound because then he says, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? In the death of Jesus, sin's power has been canceled in our lives. So we can't continue to live in a kingdom that our citizenship has been transferred from. We can't continue to do that. Paul makes this case. And so what we find in John 8 in this interchange with this woman, is that we, we treat sin too harshly and not harshly enough at the exact same time. We treat sin too harshly and not harshly enough at the same time. Because we are very interested in treating others' sin harshly. Do you know what gossip is? Gossip is confessing somebody's sin for them. We are all about how other people's sin should be treated harshly, but we're not all that interested in our sin being treated harshly. We take it not seriously enough and too seriously at the exact same time, and yet Jesus' words, go and sin no more, call us to live in a place of grace and forgiveness and in a place of obedience and trust. And so what three things does this text have to teach us this morning? The first is that Jesus does not accuse us like everybody else. Jesus does not condemn us like everybody else. Jesus does not judge us like everybody else. Because see what happens? What happens when we find out about the sin of somebody else? You go and tell somebody else and you say, you know, I shouldn't tell you this, but man, is this juicy. And when it's like a political person, man, it's like the media has a party when the world finds out somebody's sin it accuses them with celebration aha we found it we're so excited we're so excited to find out that somebody else is screwed up let's talk about it and write books about it and make a big deal out of it and then scripture also says the enemy satan he also accused he he is named the accuser of the brethren in revelation and so nobody is a bigger fan of nudging you into sin just one more time nobody will know it feels so good it's just so great, and then you step into it, and he goes, aha, I told you, look how terrible you are. God doesn't love you, God hates you, you're terrible, you're bad. And so the, so the world like, celebrates in our failure. Uh, Satan tries to bury us under a mound of shame and guilt in our failure, and here's the reality. Jesus doesn't even judge us the way that we judge ourselves, because when I fail and when you fail, we just write this massive narrative of guilt and shame and how terrible we are in our heads and in our hearts, and here's the problem, it does not lead to change. The guilt we put ourselves under and the shame we put ourselves under doesn't lead to get, lead to change, which is why Paul talks about this in Second Corinthians eight. He he takes he wrote a letter in First Corinthians that smacked down the church and may have hurt their feelings a little bit. And so he says, "I'm glad I sent that letter, not because it hurt you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow God wants His people to have. So you were not harmed by us in any way." for the kind sorrow the kind of sorrow god wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation there's no regret for that kind of sorrow but worldly sorrow which lacks repentance results in spiritual death see that when we accuse ourselves we engage in worldly sorrow shouldn't have done that aren't i terrible but the problem, he says, is it leads to spiritual death because that doesn't lead us out of sin. uh, the, The guilt that we put on ourselves, the guilt the world puts on us, the guilt the enemy puts on us does not lead us out of our sin. Only godly sorrow and repentance does that. It's only when God grabs you by the collar. It's only when God grabs you by the collar, which often hurts. He said the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. It's only when God grabs you by the collar that you begin to change. Listen, Jesus does not celebrate in our sin. He does not shame us in our sin. He does not write stories of how terrible we are in our sin. But what he does is he comes along and he just puts his finger on it. And sometimes he does that through a hard conversation with somebody else. I've had those conversations with some of you. You've had those conversations with me. He puts his finger on it. And it's not guilt, it's not shame. It is sorrow. But it's a sorrow that somehow propels us to live differently. Jesus loves you a lot. And he sees you in your sin. But he loves you so much that he's not going to let you just stay where you are. He's going to invite change. Change which is the second thing we find. The second thing we see in this text, Jesus doesn't judge us. He comes to us softly without judgment. He helps us change, but that's because he does take sin seriously. You know, some people read the Old Testament and the New, and they say the God of the Old Testament's pretty ticked off all the time. A lot of blood, a lot of smoke, a lot of fire. But Jesus, man, is he our buddy. We can like play ukulele with him on canoes at camp. Um, and, and, And yet the problem is they're the same person. Jesus in the New is the face of the God of the Old, And so Jesus still takes sin seriously. He says, go and sin no more. Jesus' words to you, if you're caught in a pattern of sin or you have been, is don't, don't keep doing that. But he comes alongside to help us in that. Jesus is not one who, when it comes to the sin in our life, engages in practices of removal. He does not see the sin in our life and say, oh, that gross habit that you've got, let me just take that and throw that away. He does not come into our house and just remove the gross toilet. He wants to renovate the whole thing. He wants to renovate the heart, which is a painful process, it's a long process, it's a transformational process, and often in some cases requires multiple contractors. Sometimes it means I need a couple of friends, I need an accountability partner. I need to be honest with a few people. And in some, small case, in some cases, I need to go talk to a counselor about this because some things have gotten so entangled into my soul that I, I, I can't do that. And some sin in our lives um, is really even connected to some other things psychologically. I mean, I was just at this drug summit. We talked all about how the vast majority of, of people who are addicted to something experience childhood trauma. Well, it sounds like we probably need to deal with the childhood trauma. We can't just keep putting band-aids on the sin that you kind of keep going back to to cope with that. Sometimes it takes multiple contractors, but it also takes a decision on our part. I mean, Jesus talks about how he comes alongside of us. It says, Scripture says, I have not given you a spirit of fear, but I have given you the spirit of love, of power, and of self-control. When you step across the line of faith, God dwells within you and partners in you so that you can say no to sin. It is only by his grace that that is possible. And then Paul says in Philippians 2 that God works in us so that we have both the energy and the desire to do what pleases him. Let me tell you something weird about when you start following Jesus. Well, the whole thing's weird, really, but all of a sudden you start doing things that you wouldn't normally do and liking them. Suddenly you find yourself liking people that you would not normally like, and that's disturbing to you on a level, and yet not anymore that's because God works in us both to give us the desire and the energy to do what pleases him it's a crazy process but he does this because Jesus takes sin seriously but he doesn't just take seriously and point the finger and tell us how screwed up we are he says I can help with that and so he comes alongside he fills it with his spirit he fills it with his presence and he walks with us and if you hear nothing else here's here's what I want you to remember this morning is that Jesus is very good at separating the sins of our past from our present and future. Jesus is very good at separating the sins of our past from our present and future. Scripture says, "I have separated your sin from you as far as the east is from the west." Would anybody like to guess how far that is? Pretty far. Uh, scripture says, "I I will not remember your sins anymore." doesn't mean like God forgot or like had to put a post-it down to remember like that you screwed up that one time. It just means that he chooses not to bring those things to minds about us. Just like you as a parent, when your kids screw up, you just eventually start choosing not to bring everything they do wrong to mind. Otherwise you go to a crazy place. Another way to think about this is that Jesus doesn't just see your sin, he sees your potential. When he says go and sin no more, He's not just like letting this woman off the hook. We'll see it later. Peace out. I mean, she calls him Lord. He says, she says, "Where he says, where are your are your accusers? Are they still here?" And she says, "No, Lord." Something shifted in her heart. And he kind of calls her onto this journey of something new. There's something new on the other side of your sin. You're settling for for too little. And so Jesus doesn't just see The sins of your past he doesn't just see your mistakes he doesn't say i can't use that guy he screwed up he only sees the potential of who you are and who you could be and says i can work with that let's pray jesus um thank you that you see our potential that you see us clearly Jesus, we come to you in this moment and we just want to name the ways that we've lived out of bounds this week. We recognize that we have failed. But Jesus, you desire so much more for us. So, Jesus, we pray that we would know your grace and forgiveness. That we would trust it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.